Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Albee. On the program today, I'll be having a discussion with Mark Lee of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He was at the Battle of Seattle 10 years ago, and he'll be talking about reflections upon that pivotal time. I'll also be talking to Peter Kolchiski, a leading authority on Native issues as well as a community activist. He was attending the Defenders of the Land Second Gathering last weekend in Vancouver. He'll share his story. Alert Radio and Canadian Dimension Magazine executive producer Cy Gonick will be talking to Mordecai Brimberg. He is the co-host of Red Eye, another community radio program on Canadian airwaves, and he'll be talking about the Canadian Parliamentary Coalition to Combat Anti-Semitism. And we'll also have Around the Left in Seven Days, as well as Music is the Weapon. Now for the alert headlines for the week of December 3rd, 2009. In Honduras, Porfirio Lobo has won the nation's presidential election. Lobo received 55% of the vote. The election comes five months after the Honduran military ousted the democratically elected President Manuel Zelaya. Lobo is a prominent supporter of the coup. The leaders of Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, and other Latin American countries say Sunday's presidential election is invalid because it was backed by the coup leaders and could end any hope of Zelaya returning to power and completing his term, which is due to end in January. No pro-Zelaya candidate ran in, San- in Sunday's election due to a boycott of the elections called by Zelaya. Human rights groups reported widespread abuses by the Honduran military and police ahead of Sunday's vote. The United States has vowed to recognize the election results. U.S. President Barack Obama is set to unveil his new Afghan strategy with an expected commitment to send thousands more troops to fight the Taliban. Obama will make his announcement in a televised speech to cadets at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He has already briefed military and foreign leaders on the deployment, reportedly of 30,000 additional troops. The U.S. currently has about 68,000 troops in Afghanistan, with foreign forces overall totaling more than 100,000. The new Marines are expected to leave for Afghanistan before the end of the month. It could take 12 to 18 months to deploy the reinforcements fully. Harper has said that he will adhere to a motion passed in Parliament and not extend Canada's military mission beyond 2011. In an open letter addressed to the citizens of Canada, George Monbiot, columnist for The Guardian and best-selling author, castigated the Harper government's climate change policies. He writes, Like most people, like most of the world's people, I have always held your nation in high regard. Yours is one of the best-loved countries on earth, renowned for being friendly, peaceful, and responsible. Your government is now burning this goodwill. After abandoning the commitments the previous government made under the Kyoto Protocol, ensuring that Canada will be the only signatory to wildly miss its targets, the Harper administration is now sabotaging the climate talks that will culminate in Copenhagen next month. Mambiat continues, During the negotiations in Bangkok in October, developing nations were so dismayed by Canada's wrecking tactics that most of them walked out while your officials were speaking. In Barcelona this month, non-governmental organizations attending the talks presented Canada with their Fossil of the Week award. Yours was the country that had done the most to prevent an agreement from being reached. 
Mambia concluded, Canada's tactics have caused shock and revulsion everywhere. They are dragging your good name through the mud. Stephen Harper and Jim Prentice threatened to do as much damage to your international standing as George W. Bush and Dick Cheney did to that of the United States. Most Canadians think climate change is the planet's defining crisis, a new poll suggests. That belief is held most strongly in Quebec and less so in the prairies, a survey conducted by Harris Decima on behalf of the Monk organization. The poll asked Canadians if they agreed or disagreed that climate change is mankind's defining crisis and demands a commensurate response. Nearly two-thirds of Canadians agreed, while 31% disagreed. The survey found a strong belief on both sides of the climate change debate that there is a moral responsibility to deal with global warming now to save the planet future generations. In Iraq, major oil companies are finally gaining access to Iraq's petroleum reserves more than six and a half years after the United States-led invasion. Analysts say the companies seem to have calculated that it is worth their while to accept deals with limited profit opportunities now in order to cash in on more lucrative development deals in the future. Within days of the deal's ratification, ExxonMobil and Royal Dutch Shell signed a contract to develop West Corna, Iraq's most sought-after oil field, which is believed to hold at least 8.6 billion barrels of oil. Tamara Lorenz, a former Halifax West NDP candidate, has left her party because it is not strongly against the war in Afghanistan. In a letter to family, friends and supporters dated November 2009, Ms. Lorenz announces that she will not run for the party again. During her election campaign, Defence Minister Peter McKay attacked her after she shouted at uniformed soldiers entering a trade show for weapons contractors. Lorin says she did not have full support from the NDP federally or provincially because of her outspoken opposition to Canada's war in Afghanistan. Swiss voters have overwhelmingly approved a referendum banning the construction of minarets on Muslim places of worship. The referendum was sponsored by two right-wing parties. Switzerland is home to more than 400,000 Muslims and has just four minarets. A campaign poster in support of the ban depicted a woman in a burqa in front of a row of minarets shaped like missiles. Amnesty International said the vote to ban minarets violated freedom of religion and would probably be overturned by the Swiss Supreme Court or the European Court of Human Rights. The Chinese government is opening an official bar for gay men as part of local authorities' efforts to fight HIV and AIDS. The bar is based in Dali, a town in the southwestern Yunnan province. Yunnan has the country's highest rates of HIV and AIDS, according to official data. The government said it funded the project to reach out to the gay community in China and break social stigma against gay men. China's health minister claimed earlier this month that homosexual sex among gay and bisexual men accounted for 32% of HIV and AIDS transmission in the country. The bar's inauguration coincides with World AIDS Day. The United Nations has called on rich countries to provide 7.13 billion U.S. dollars to fund its humanitarian efforts in 2010. The world body said the money would enable urgent humanitarian aid for 48 million people in 25 countries, mostly in Africa. At the top of the U.N.'s list of countries most in need is Sudan, for which it is seeking over 1 billion U.S. dollars. Afghanistan has risen to the second place with an $871 million plea, followed by the Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia, and the occupied Palestinian territory. Last year, the U.N. sought 7 billion U.S. dollars, although the sum was later revised to 7. 8.85 billion US dollars. 
Hamas says it is on the verge of starting its own investigation into whether it committed war crimes during Israel's siege of Gaza. The probe is one of the main requirements of the recent UN-backed Goldstone report into the conflict, which took place during last December and January. Most of the report's criticism was reserved for Israel. In a rare interview with Al Jazeera, Ishmael Hania, the deposed Palestinian prime minister and the senior Hamas official in Gaza, said that he is still hopeful to exchange Galid Shalit, a captured Israeli soldier, for Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails. And those were the alert headlines for December 3rd, 2009. And now around the left for December 3rd to 12th, 2009. The Downtown Eastside Power to Women group in Vancouver is in need of non-corporate and non-government funding. On December 9th, they're hosting a fundraising event that will include a craft sale, poetry, storytelling, and comedy. Over the past few years, this group has emerged as a critical voice on different issues in their neighborhood, and they need financial support so they can continue with their individual and group empowerment, healing, and organizing efforts. This fundraising event is at 6 p.m. at the Downtown Eastside Women's Center in Vancouver. On December 12th, meet at City Hall in Toronto to protest the transit fare increases. The transit fare hike of 25 cents per fare and almost $30 a month for a monthly pass will kick in on January 3rd. For poor and working people in Toronto, especially for families, transit costs are already often unaffordable. Riders cover more than 80% of the Toronto Transit Commission's operating cost, and it is by far the least funded mass transit system in North America. Meet at Toronto City Hall at 1 p.m. Brewster Neen, offer the food security class Farmageddon, is back with his new book, The Tyranny of Rights. On December the 8th, Neen will be at Mondragon in Winnipeg to launch his new book. In this work, Neen asks why the demand for rights has become such a dominant strategy of movements for social and economic justice. The lecture begins at 7.30. The annual holiday appeal for class war prisoners is not just charity, it's an act of duty and solidarity with those in prison. This holiday appeal will be held at the Steelworkers Hall in Toronto on December 11th. This fundraising event will include speeches, music, food and refreshments, as well as a special presentation of State Repression and Class Struggle Defense in Capitalist Canada. Tickets are $5 in advance, $8 at the door. The event begins at 7 p.m. December the 10th is International Human Rights Day. On this day, the Round Street Cafe in Lethbridge is hosting an Amnesty International-sponsored letter-writing campaign called Write for Rights. The goal is to write 300 letters to the Prime Minister and the Minister of Foreign Affairs about the many political prisoners Amnesty works to free. The cafe will provide entertainment, refreshments and door prizes. This event is free and begins at 7 p.m. And that's Around the Left for December 3rd to December 12th, 2009. 
The Defenders of the Land held its second gathering last weekend in Vancouver. The Defenders of the Land is a new movement of Indigenous activists from all over Canada. We asked Peter Kolchiski, who participated in this gathering, as well as the first one held in Winnipeg last year, to describe what transpired in Vancouver. Peter is a leading authority on Native issues as well as being a community activist. He is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. Peter, the second gathering has just concluded. Uh, welcome to Alert. Tell us about who is there. Thanks, folks. Well, list of people there. Um, Arthur Manuel um, from the interior of BC, uh, the Shushwaps, I guess. Uh, Russell Diabo, who's a Mohawk, who works with Barrier Lake people. There were some people from Barrier Lake. We had Judy De Silva and uh, some people from Grassy Narrows in northwestern Ontario. We had uh, Sam McKay from the Kitchenomakasi Beninawag in uh, also in the far northwest corner of Ontario. We had uh, Eugenie Mercury from the Pimichikamak in northern Manitoba. Um, we had quite a few people from BC because it was it was based in BC. So we had uh, Irene Billy from the Sequinuk uh, 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 First Nation who are involved in the struggle against the Sun Peaks. Uh, we had actually um, uh, Delbert um, Guerin, who was of the Musqueam Nation, who was involved in the famous, well, who was the Guerin behind the Guerin uh, Supreme Court decision in 1985. Okay. He opened and closed the event. Um, we had uh, Robert Lovelace from the Ardoch uh, First Nation in southern Ontario. Um, so uh, we had uh, David Eccinelli from uh, the Shuta Kotene in uh, the Northwest Territories. Uh, quite a range of uh, regions and uh, peoples who were represented there, and there are probably some that I'm missing. Uh, I was going to say quite a quite a variety there. Was it the same representation, Peter, as the first gathering in Winnipeg last year, or was it somewhat different? Yeah, many of the we wanted, you know, our first priority was to get the same people back. Mm-hmm. So we had many of the same people back, but some uh, couldn't make it. Uh, and then we were, you know, we got more BC representation, and we were trying to draw some other people who weren't able to make it to the Winnipeg event. So I would say um, many of those people, but not all of them, were at the first one. Uh, some people, like Elizabeth Panashway of the Innu Nation, uh, couldn't make it for this gathering, uh, and you know her presence was missed uh, for sure. Of course. But, um, but, uh, and uh, we also uh, we had. Um, Milton born with a tooth um, from southern Alberta at the first gathering, and uh, he was sort of our warrior, basically, at the first one, and uh, he wasn't at the second one. We missed him. Okay. But uh, almost everybody else of sort of the lead people were there, and then uh, with some people in addition. Oh, I should also say we had uh, Bertha Wilson, who was uh, leading the, the struggle of Tawasan people against the land claim recently negotiated there. Okay, so was she a new addition to the so gathering? She was new to the event, yeah. Fantastic. Give our listeners, Peter, an idea of what specific issues were raised uh, at the at the gathering this past sure. weekend in I mean, Vancouver. The basic idea here was to bring together those community leaders who may or may not have been traditional or elected chiefs, so they might or may not be in a formal political structure. But in one way or another, all, many of these people have been in jail, have been arrested, have been dissenting against the government policy and really putting their bodies on the line. So these mm-hmm. are, are people who are well-known within the regions, if not nationally, for sort of fighting against um, uh, the state's encroachments on their on their traditional territories, okay. mostly from the mid and far north. So uh, in regions where the land base might still be intact or might largely be intact and, and uh, able to support traditional subsistence economies. And so in the first gathering, a lot of time was spent as people told the stories of what was happening, uh, what had happened and what was happening to their First Nations. This gathering was more an attempt to, rather than repeat that, to build on that and to start thinking about 
what kind of structures and ways we could um, help each other out, what kind of ways these different First Nations could show support for each other, could coordinate their activities, uh, could build something that uh, might turn a page in Canadian history in the sense of um, uh, really if they coordinate together, letting the Canadian government know that First Nations aren't going to just stand by and watch their lands be encroached upon. I should say again, <laughs> I keep thinking of other people. We had uh, Mike Mercury from um, uh, Fort Chipewyan, one of the tar sands affected communities, was, okay. uh, was there at this event as well. So lots of people representing lots of different issues. Yeah, that's right. So instead of looking so much at any specific issues, you know, the, uh, the general theme is defending the land wherever and however, whether it's from logging, from mining companies, from oil and gas development, from hydroelectric development. And we included some discussion of urban issues, uh, you know, uh, and other kinds of issues that Aboriginal people face. Uh, whether they're in urban centers or whether they're from southern communities where the land base has largely been eroded. So some issues around, you know, uh, government interference in local uh, traditional governance practices, which is a common theme for many of these communities, I think. And, you know, problems of what uh, in CD we would call comprador leadership. Uh, those many of the places are dealing with leaders who have been willing to sign agreements kind of in their own elite self-interest often. Right, as opposed to, you know, taking the interest of the community at hand. Yeah, and but I should also say we had, you know, some people there who were chiefs, whether traditional or elected chiefs, who were fighting for their communities, you know, and, and in there as well. So we wanted to be very careful about not tarring all the chiefs with the same brush. We recognize that some of them are, you know, cooperating with the government. Uh, right. And some of them are, are doing their best for their communities. And usually, I'm afraid, unfortunately, cooperating with the government these days tends to mean you're not doing the best for your community. Right. Um, another dimension of the gathering I should mention was that, you know, there were a small percentage of people there were non-Aboriginal supporters. And these are people from either, like, Indigenous support groups, like I'm a member of the Winnipeg Indigenous People Solidarity Movement, and there right. are these kind of Ipsums now in several places across Canada, um, but also from um, environmental organizations, and, and most interestingly, I think, both in Winnipeg and at this event, from anti-racist organizations such as No One is Illegal, so, uh, you know, there's been a, some history of non-Aboriginal white people in Canada basically supporting Aboriginal people, but to bring uh, anti-racist uh, people from urban areas sort of into the dialogue and people whose uh, families might originate from India or the Middle East or Africa or wherever, I think adds a significant and uh, uh, really worthwhile dimension to the discussion for us supporters of how we can support this Indigenous space. Most definitely. Um, definitely sounds like something uh, that can be most effective when we do things like that. Let's talk about the mood of the gathering this year, Peter. Yep. I, you know, I would how did you read really it? This time around, uh, like last year, there was a real excitement in the air and that there was kind of this, uh, I think, a sense of potentially something new happening and doors opening. And, uh, uh, and I would say there was some of that this year, but we're really more focused now on, okay, you know, uh, now we have to dig in and see if we can actually, you know, get some kind of a structure in place and see if we can, we can continue momentum. So it was, I think there was a lot more attention given to nuts and bolts details. At the same time, I think just being in a room with these people, like for me, it's inspirational just to sit in the same room as Judy De Silva or Elizabeth Panoshwe or Irene Billy or, you know, some of these women who've been arrested for their beliefs and right. are basically people just trying to live a traditional way of life who have, you know, traditional language and knowledge protocols. Um, so just sitting in the room, and I think for them as well, like just being in the space with each other is kind of a, an invigorating and a, an inspiring sort of thing. So I think we all had kind of a feeling of just you know, being, uh, feeling good just being there and being face-to-face -face with each other and, you know, sharing information and telling little stories and having some humor and all of that. So um, th towards the very end of the gathering, um, we had uh, both uh, 
uh, Bertha Wilson and David Eccinelli, who hadn't had a chance to address the whole group. Uh, we gave some time on the agenda towards the end for them, and they sort of brought everyone back from this discussion of structure and principles really down to the grass level and reminding us of what this is really about by telling sort of the stories of their communities. Wonderful. So um, I think on, a, uh, on the whole, you know, the tone was kind of workmanlike, but with these moments of inspiration that punctuated. Which always makes it much more effective. Because um, it... I would say that uh, it, it's working towards trying to develop some kind of uh, an effective coordination of you know, the activities going on in all of these different areas. And, uh, and the, the first meeting was very effective, in, in the sense of really just bringing us together and inspiring everybody and, and opening a, a, a window of opportunity. Um, this gathering, I think, was really trying to carry through on that, and the future will tell whether we succeeded or not, although I think we got a lot of work done. And so let's talk about the work done. Um, are there plans for any cross-country actions? Well, um, we, uh, there were uh, sort of uh, network-building you know, continued educational actions. And I think there is the thought of trying to do some kind of a national mobilization, but I think we're waiting till we have some kind of organizational capacity to, to turn to that sort of thing. Um, so uh, uh, I think the next steps probably involve capacity building. Although I should say out of the first meeting came, uh, you know, across Canada, many of your viewers might have encountered um, these Indigenous Sovereignty Weeks, which we had some events in Winnipeg in October around this, and events were held in a variety of places, including in Toronto and Ottawa, Montreal, Vancouver, Edmonton, um, and some smaller communities. So um, we will probably try and sponsor a series of events like that again next fall, building towards another gathering of the Defenders. And um, I probably can't say publicly what other kinds of things we might um, we might plan, but certainly there's a seriousness of intent. There's a sense if... You know, if any one of these communities is involved in state repression, and many of these communities are currently involved or planning blockades or other kinds of actions, right. and if something escalates there, you know, this network, I think, would be quite serious about trying to do things to support that. Um, and there are all kinds of, uh, you know, things we can imagine doing. Um, uh, but And then, apart from that, sort of just being on alert, um, uh, and actually, the the expression "red alert" was used at the meeting to describe because you know people are roughly speaking on the political left, and there's a notion of alert. Right. We had some fun with the idea of a red alert for oh. the, the red Indians of North America, and the notion of alert and the notion of being on the left. Interesting. Um, uh, and at the same time, we're sort of not necessarily waiting for that, but looking at building some cap- capacity, and at some point, possibly being proactive. Okay, so I guess time will tell, as you said, Peter. Um, okay. Has the gathering been? pretty well established now as an annual event? Uh, well, we're flying by the seat of our pants financially. And, you know, government isn't particularly interested in sponsoring this kind of thing. Right. So we relied on a, a quite a range of funders in getting small bits and pieces of money, Some a little bit of foundation money, a little bit of union money, a little bit of credit union money. Um, uh, and so uh, we're hoping that somewhere, you know, in that range of things, a little bit of research money, um, that, you know, we can find someone who can step up and, and give us, we, you know, this is all people are really donating their own time and, uh, do, uh, you know, volunteering and putting a lot of, uh, 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 no one who was there was paid for it. Right. Um, but uh, uh, I think uh, whether it continues or not will probably depend upon whether ahead of time, this was just, the finances for this ended up, unfortunately, being pulled together at the very last minute. So um, we'll have to try and look at, not a lot, but getting a little bit of money um, and, you know, I'd say one of the things that was a kind of promising to me out of the first gathering was there was interest, in, interest from the union sector in supporting this. And a variety of the major public sector unions have Aboriginal caucuses in them now. 
and they've been hit by the you know financial crisis as much as everybody else has. But we're hoping that um, uh, one of those organizations, um, uh, you know, might be willing to to give us what for them would be a small chunk of money, and what for us would be really significant to to push this agenda along. And so, where where do you think uh, 2010 is going to be, or, or are you still working on that? They didn't uh, talk about a place. I I think the other sort of logical possibilities right now are uh, Edmonton, because I think um, it's accessible for northern people, and I think there's a lot of interest in the struggle against the tar sands as one of the right. you know, currently leading kind of uh, resource-based struggles that's taking place in the country today. Um, Edmonton does have a very good activist gathering called Everyone's Downstream, so it could be held potentially in conjunction with that or in relation to that, or it could be a separate standalone event. Okay. Um, I think there's also an interest in having it in Toronto. Uh, one of the things that we've seen that partly sparked this was with the arrest of the Kitchen-Omekasib in Ninawag 6, you know, there was a fairly strong mass movement to try and get those guys out of jail. And the, you know, attention and energy to the Indigenous Sovereignty Week in Toronto was very, very high. So there's a feeling like there's a bit of a momentum for kind of a mass movement support for Indigenous issues in Toronto. So okay. to me, that would also potentially be a logical place. But um uh, I should, you know, emphasize that I'm a non-Aboriginal person, so I'm in the support group, and okay. I do coordinate with people, and I've played, you know, a reasonably instrumental helping role. But uh, the decisions are made by people like Art Manuel and Russell Diabo and um, uh, Muriel Lapointe and, uh, you know, the people who are kind of right in the heart of things. Right. So I guess, again, time will tell. Um, <laughs> time will tell. Tell us right. about your highlight uh, of this year's gathering. Uh, well, for me, certainly uh, hearing directly from Bertha Wilson about the struggles at Tawasan, she gave really a beautiful and powerful speech. Um, Delbert Guerin speaking at the very beginning about the Guerin decision, I thought uh, you know, uh, that was really good. Uh, we, uh, there was, at this meeting more than the other one, the first meeting was largely in plenary session, like sitting around two large circles and people telling stories. This one, the, the plenary sessions... Um, were much less a feature of the event. We broke into caucuses to do work and then to report back. Good. So uh, I participated largely in the non-Aboriginal supporters caucus. And I must say that that was really inspiring for me in general. The quality, the level of conversation, the quality of conversation, and you know, uh, uh, to see some young activists who are taking up the cudgels and have a much better head start in terms of their knowledge of Aboriginal issues and you know to have the energy of people involved in the anti-racist movement sitting around the table and really making significant contributions to that discussion right um uh, that for me is like uh, and you know to see a few people uh, graduate students so it's the university involvement in this event is very low i was basically the only professorial type who spent the time there but there were probably about a half dozen graduate students from universities across the country who were there for much of the event. And hopefully um, we can build and, on that. Know, people just uh, working as activists uh, without an affiliation with the university. So I thought uh, those discussions for me, were, um, which were the ones that I participated in, were quite inspiring. Good. Um, and then apart from that, just little side conversations that I had with some of these leaders. You know, it's just uh, it's nice to, to sometimes for me to put a you know, a face to a name that I've long heard but never had a chance to and to have a good, you know, conversation and hear right. directly from people about their stories. Uh, Very inspiring. inspiring so. I bet. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for sharing your experience at the Second Gathering. Uh, thank you and much. It, it was a, a truly uh, great event and, 
you know, if if we can carry through with this, I think uh, it may be historically significant. So time will tell. You bet. And thanks very much. Thank you. Bye Okay, now. thank you. And that was Peter Kolchiski, a leading authority on Native issues here in Winnipeg at the University of Manitoba in the Native Studies Department. He's also a community activist and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. He just attended the second gathering of the Defenders of the Land, which was held in Vancouver. And it's a new movement of Indigenous activists from all over Canada. Mordecai Brimberg is a founding member of the, of the Canada-Palestine Support Network, a serious student of Middle East politics, and a longtime host and collective member of Red Eye, a weekly program that's produced at Vancouver Co-op Radio. We contacted him at his uh, Vancouver home. Welcome to Alert, Mordecai. I'm really pleased to be on your program. Thanks for inviting me. Great. We're interested in talking with you uh, today about the Canadian Parliamentary Coalition to Combat Anti-Semitism, CPCCA, which uh, has, is, has been in session for a few weeks now and will continue into December. Is this an official committee of the Canadian Parliament, and how did it come about, and who sits on it? Well, the first question is very important. It is not a parliamentary committee. They've chosen a name which kind of gives a bit of that illusion, but really they're self-selected members of parliament who uh, have gathered together as uh, supporters of Israeli policy to try and uh, create a uh, a groundswell through uh, public hearings they're holding in parliament, even though they're not a committee of parliament, um, and they also uh, have not revealed uh, any way their financing. They say they are not financed by the government, they are not financed by non-governmental organizations, but somehow they can't find the time or energy to tell us who they are financed Is by. this an all-party committee? It is. There are members from the Conservatives and the Liberal parties. There are two members from the... New Democratic Party. Both of them are from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, um, uh, Pat Martin and Judy Wasilisalis, and there are also uh, members from the Bloc Québécois. What but do you, what as do you far make as of I that? know, as far as I know, the parties themselves certainly. I'm told that the New Democratic Party did not meet in caucus to either discuss this committee to delegate people to be part of it, uh, it's totally, it seems, by their own initiative. So this doesn't mean that there is a consensus among all the parties that anti-Semitism uh, has become a pressing problem in Canada? Right? No, there, there certainly isn't any declared uh, consensus on that. Certainly, uh, we could say, uh, and, and this is an interesting and noteworthy phenomenon in relation to this uh, committee, we can certainly say that the Conservatives and the Liberals are uh, banging heads one against the other to demonstrate who is more pro-Israel uh, than anyone else. So instead of having anybody advocating for a, an open uh, democratic discussion about Canadian policy towards Israel, we have people getting up as Canadian parliamentarians and saying, I'm more loyal to Israel than you are. 
and it was stimulated. Uh, this this uh, event is is uh, uh, a bit bizarre in the sense that uh, the Tories and the Liberals have joined together in really being the driving force behind this CPCCA, this coalition to combat anti-Semitism, and they want to uh, be able to define uh, serious critical uh, positions about Israeli policy, saying, for example, Israel is based on an apartheid structure, or uh, the notion of a Jewish state as a uh, concept that gives privileged positions to Jewish citizens of Israel compared to non-Jewish citizens of Israel, or which advocates a boycott as a way of making Israel accountable for its violations of international law and human rights, all these positions they seem to want to make uh, defined as anti-Semitic and hate speech and to uh, criminalize them. And uh, at the same time as they're joining in this campaign uh, to, uh, to get their targets, uh, to, to get ammunition to hit people who who have critical views of Israeli policy and practices, they're fighting with each other over electoral advantage. So the Conservative Party has distributed in constituencies they've selected that have large Jewish, relatively large Jewish uh, uh, member people in, in those constituencies, and they're circulating uh, uh, election uh, propaganda which says... Uh, the liberals are soft on anti-Semitism. So it shows that this uh, ill-defined anti-Semitism, which is really equivalent to how loyal you are to saying yes to everything Israel does, is being abused. Uh, it's ludicrous to call Erwin Kotler an anti-Semite, uh, but that's roughly what the Tories are doing. And it's ludicrous for Erwin Kotler to define me or someone else who disagrees with Israeli policies and thinks it is an apartheid structure and that the notion of a Jewish state is uh, certainly debatable and I would say, in my view, uh, contrary to universal rights, uh, why should I be labeled an anti-Semite? Why do you think that uh, all the political parties are so anxious to prove how pro-Israel they are, whereas... You don't hear any of them championing the cause of the Palestinian state. Is it just an electoral demographic? I, I don't think it's electoral demographics because I do think that opinions in the population at large are shifting in relation to Israeli policy, shifting to a more critical view at the same time that the parties themselves are adopting a more uh, supportive view of, uh, of Israel. And I think this is due to, uh, if you look at, uh, for example, uh, the domination of the media by pro-Israeli uh, uh, people, uh, the Asper Press is a, is a clear example of that. They openly bragged that they were the most pro-Israel of, uh, of any media, but uh, they're not alone in that. Uh, so I think at the, at the power holders level, at the elite level, there's a very... Um, uh, pro-Israel stance, because uh, otherwise you you get attacked not by not by the population at large, but by uh, uh, influential people in the corporate media. Uh, okay, now cultural, I'll, I'll uh, ask you. I'll ask you that question uh, one lo one level deeper. Why are they so committed to uh, Israel, the, the the corporate elite, the media elite? 
Well, if if we look at, um, uh, I understand this in terms of the power of the U.S. empire. Israel is a key part of, uh, of an influential part, an important part, particularly in the Middle East region, but well beyond that as well, uh, in, in the American imperial project. And uh, if we look at Canadian capital, certainly, particularly at the time when it looked like the United States was going to be the sole uh, uh, superpower in the world, uh, the rush to kind of unify around that um, uh, dream, uh, a nightmare for most people in the world, but a dream for, for people of big money, uh, then, then Israel is, is uh, sort of a, a part of that um, uh, attachment to, to the United States. Are they going so far as to say that any criticism of the state of Israel is anti-Semitic, or are they are they targeting you know what you've mentioned the boycott, uh, apartheid, uh, uh, exclusively Jewish state, and those kinds of arguments? Yes, I, you're you're very right to raise that. They they specifically say, of course, we allow criticism of Israel, but they then go on to say. Israel is, uh, as a state, is the collective Jew among nations. So anything they argue that in a way challenges the way Israel is structured is an effort to really destroy uh, Jews. Mm -hmm. And within that sort of false reasoning, I think it's false reasoning, they then say, well, what isn't really legitimate is to say it's apartheid, because apartheid is by United Nations. It's not just a case of South Africa having been apartheid, but the United Nations itself has a, a, a resolution on apartheid as something that could occur in any country and is illegitimate. So it forces uh, a change on Israel's structural uh, uh, relations. Same with the notion of a Jewish state, and the same with boycott, simply because it has become a growing force in the world, uh, a peaceful force, uh, a way in which popular groupings can shift their government positions away from support of Israeli policies to opposition to them. This uh, tactic, and that's all a boycott is, is a tactic, is seen as so threatening to the existing structure of Israel by people like Kotler and Kenny, who who uh, who don't want any changes in Israel, um, uh, that they want those things to be proscribed, those things to be prohibited, and they want to label them under their definition of what they call new anti-Semitism to be illegitimate, conceived as hateful, and therefore punishable by law. Who is uh, testifying before the CPCCA inquiry? Uh, there were uh, submissions made by many organizations at the beginning of the summer uh, when they declared themselves in existence publicly. The CPCCA on its website said, we welcome submissions on these questions from uh, the public. So uh, organizations uh, across the country and individuals, probably nearly 30 submissions were made, 
critical of the premises uh, of the committee, the premise that, for example, anti-Semitism is really an urgent issue in the country. Um, I haven't commented on that, but it is worth making the comment. If you were to think uh, who are the most vulnerable uh, groups subject to, to racial persecution or discrimination in the country, who would come to mind? Uh, would Native people not come to mind as a primary group? Would visible minorities, black people in in Montreal, Haitians who are uh, shot more frequently by police than other than in any other grouping, etc. There would be many groups that would come to mind. So if we're really worried about bigotry, as we should be in this country and discrimination, let's really look at it seriously, comprehensively, and not arbitrarily privilege one group over the other, and certainly not one group that is uh, least vulnerable. So they have to redefine their uh, anti-Semitism as uh, not the old-fashioned anti-Semitism, which was bigotry against Jews simply because you're Jewish, but now it is serious criticism of Israel. So they haven't allowed any testimony by uh, opposition by by groups oppositional to the, the the committee. No, to my knowledge, no, they have not invited anyone. In fact, it was difficult for many of the groups that made submissions to even get uh, the bureaucratic uh, response. Uh, we have received your submission. We confirm it has been received. They had to be badgered even to uh, to do that. So the people they've invited, they brought people from Europe, they brought people from many from the United States. It's very interesting. They, they seem to have a lot of Americans that they're bringing up, even though this is supposedly an issue for the Canadian Parliament to deal with a situation in this country, not in some other country. And uh, they brought people from Israel uh, as well. Uh, in all cases, they're people who hold to the view that uh, uh, anti-Semitism is a, uh, uh, at heights of intensity not seen since uh, the 30s in Germany, that uh, it uh, must be dealt with and by prescription of, uh, of the speech and public discourse on this question. And uh, that, that is clearly a process which has no... It's not a process, one could say, they're seeking information before they make judgment. It's rather they have made a judgment, mm -hmm. and they're trying to get reports which simply validate what they have already decided. So, finally, Mordecai, what do you think they hope comes out of the inquiry, um, and is, is that likely to happen? I think they hope, uh, if one looks at, let's say, submission from the Canadian Jewish Congress, which is one of the groups that will probably be heard, uh, uh, they don't identify the groups they've called until they're actually about to appear in, in the hearing. Uh, they, want, um, they want to have, uh, one of their proposals is to have somebody in the government at an ambassadorial level, but working in a ministry, it could be foreign affairs, it could be some ministry of immigration or multiculturalism, uh, to monitor things like anti-Semitism in, in their new definition of it. They want to have a lot of funding distributed to organizations like the Canadian Jewish Congress, that is public, uh, public funds. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and they want to have police training that would help them identify anti-Semitic uh, uh, speech. And they want to have education in the public school system to highlight and deal with this. In other words, it's a program not just, it seems to me, of legislation, but a program of government funding for a whole elaborate, extensive bureaucratic apparatus that would continue to keep this propaganda alive that criticism of Israel is uh, anti-Semitic. And do you think they are likely to be successful at this? I think it's uh, dubious. I think it, it this. Uh, I, I think democratic forces within the society can be successful in uh, in resisting this. Uh, Canadian civil li- not Canadian civil liberties, but civil liberties organizations in Canada have become increasingly concerned with it. University uh, faculty have become concerned with it. And I think it's important that other national and ethnic groupings in the country also take it up and say, uh, how come uh, this great uh, crusade against anti-Semitism, which doesn't seem to threaten, uh, to be threatening very much in the society, takes a priority over um, racism, uh, Islamophobia, racism against uh, First Nations people in particular, against black and and south asian people i mean we have incident after incident of these forms of racism so i think i think it is uh... it is possible to respond creatively and effectively and to achieve uh... wider opportunity for an actual democratic open-ended discourse about what policy canada should have in relation to what the israeli government is doing All right. Thank you very, very much, Mordecai Brimberg, for being with us uh, today. Thank you. uh, Yeah. Uh, And I want to remind the audience that um, Mordecai uh, Brimberg is uh, co-host of Red Eye in in, uh, Vancouver, a weekly program that is produced at Vancouver Co-op Radio. Uh, He is a founding member of the Canada-Palestine Support Network and a serious student of Middle East politics. Thanks again, Mordecai. Thank you. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. This year and month marks the 10th anniversary of the Battle of Seattle. Tens of thousands of people from all over North America came together to try to close down a meeting of the World Trade Organization. And they succeeded, though not by themselves, of course. Alert Radio wanted to hear directly from someone who was part of the protest to get an understanding of what happened in Seattle, possibly as a prelude to what could happen at Copenhagen over the next few weeks. Mark Lee is a senior economist at the BC office of the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. He was in Seattle in November and December 1999, and we reached him at his Vancouver office. Welcome to Alert Radio, Mark Lee. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Now, first, the broad strokes. What was Seattle all about, and why should we still be talking about it 10 years later? Well, I think, you know, as Naomi Klein has uh, argued in some of her work, you know, Seattle was kind of the coming out of the, what became to be known as the anti-globalization movement. 
Uh, it was a, a meeting of the World Trade Organization, uh, and the intent of that meeting was to launch a new round of trade negotiations. And people were concerned that, you know, with the creation of the, the WTO in 1995, that it already expanded sufficiently broadly, that, you know, it, was, it had moved from an organization that was covering some very narrow technical areas to do with manufactured goods and was starting to cover agriculture, services, uh, and related issues to do with environment and, and labor and, and that kind of stuff, but all within the context of, you know, more of a free trade model. And so what you had in Seattle was a, a backlash that emerged. Uh, you had uh, students and um, uh, union leaders and environmentalists and a whole host of civil society coming together to protest uh, in one place uh, this organization that was uh, the WTO, and in the end, it turned out that the the talks were delayed, uh, largely on the basis of direct action by uh, a number of the youthful protesters that that came out. Uh, and in the end, the the new round of trade negotiations uh, was not uh, launched. Although a couple years later, after 9/11, uh, it, it was launched in the kingdom of Qatar, far away from protest. Well, Mark Lee, give us uh, your perspective, because you were on the ground during the Battle of Seattle. Tell us the kind of events that were happening and uh, your experiences. Well, I went to Seattle as an NGO delegate, so I was officially, you know, had credentials with the WTO, which meant, um, you know, that in the day before the protest, um, you know, we got to go into the convention center and mill around a little bit, none of which was particularly uh, exciting. Uh, and then there were some official, uh, you know, marches that had been planned, largely, um, you know, a big rally at the stadium at Seattle Center and a, and a march that went down to the center and back. And this was largely uh, trade unions and, and other big organizations who had, had, had come together to put this on. But I think the real surprise was uh, the dedication of uh, of a smaller group of activists who, um, you know, brought uh, direct action techniques to bear and essentially locked themselves together outside of the convention center to prevent the delegates from going in. And that was what delayed the talks by a day and got the most profile. At, at the end of the day, I think the talks broke down not so much because of that, but because of major divisions within the WTO itself, largely between the uh, the rich developed countries, uh, generally called the, the North, uh, and the poor developing or third world countries, generally called uh, the South. And the critique that had come out of the WTO over a number of years was that, you know, northern countries were using this as, an, as a means of getting preferential access to those uh, southern markets for, in the representation of their large corporate interests. Uh, and that, you know, southern countries were not getting a good deal um, by any standard uh, from this and certainly didn't want to, uh, to go into a new round having to make ever more concessions to, to big northern capital. And so I think that was really what drove the, the demise uh, of those negotiations. Well, Mark Lee, I'd like to ask you about the protest aspect of the events. Uh, Canadian Dimension magazine, in our uh, February 2000 uh, issue, we talked uh, about the new youth movement, and, and uh, it was argued that 
the Seattle, that Seattle was the best argument against the claim that youth, labor, and environmentalists could not work together to wage common struggle against corporate capitalism. Looking back on that statement from uh, 10 years ago, how would you assess this commentary? Well, I think that, you know, Seattle was a success from this perspective of bringing together groups who had not traditionally stood with each other. You know, for example, you know, in the decade prior to Seattle, uh, labor and uh, environmental groups, uh, if anything, tended to be at each other's throats over things like Clackwatt Sound and logging, you know, here where I'm from in, in B.C. Uh, and in, in other uh, areas as well. So I think it was interesting that they found a, a common denominator uh, in sort of corporate-driven globalization as manifested through the, the WTO that then, you know, followed on to, you know, protests against the proposed free trade area of the Americas and some really big protests that I was also part of in, in 2001 in Quebec City at what was the, then the summit of, a, of the Americas. Um, that initiative went by the wayside as well. The, the WTO is uh, it was successful in launching a new round of trade negotiations, but at, at the end of the day, those negotiations have stalled largely because of the same issues um, that were brought up in terms of the North and the South. And I think that the, the Southern country governments felt bolstered in their positions by having, um, you know, the, the protesters outside. And you have to remember, this was in 1999, so it was, you know, close to the peak of this big, long economic expansion of the 1990s. So, you know, in terms of, you know, economic grounds, um, you know, there's really no reason why people, you know, would be protesting. Uh, and yet, you know, here it was, people were actually concerned about things other than trade, uh, about the impact of trade, for example, on the environment or labor standards uh, or the ability to, you know, regulate uh, in the public interest or the implications that has for, um, the public sector or crown corporations and, and these sort of things. And I think you see those dynamics now taking place in terms of this cross, you know, movement sectoral alliances uh, in Copenhagen on the issue of climate change. Well, let's talk uh, about Copenhagen and uh, compare the the environmentalism, or rather the protest movement. Uh, it's much more in support of the objectives, but uh, as compared to the Battle of Seattle. So what would you say are the lessons we can apply from Seattle for Copenhagen? Well, you know, Copenhagen's different in the sense that um, the protests are about trying to push governments to come together to find a meaningful agreement, whereas in Seattle it was the opposite. It was about preventing those very same governments from coming to a new agreement to launch a new round of trade negotiations. But at the heart, there's a lot of similarities between what you're seeing that, um, you know, continually, and this is so true for Canada as well as the United States, you know, our governments are not representing the broad majority of people, but are standing up for certain economic interests. And in the case of climate change, uh, the oil and gas uh, industry uh, in particular. Uh, so people are, um, you know, strongly protesting against that. I mean, it's a situation where, you know, essentially the fate of human civilization hangs in the balance. So, you know, it couldn't be, um, you know, more important. But I think it does matter. It matters to have the protest uh, outside, and it you know matters to have um, you know protest online and in every venue possible to try to uh, get governments to break out of their business as usual patterns 
and actually, you know, come together to find an agreement that uh, uh, that solves this uh, this problem. It is, in a sense, the mother of all collective action problems because you need essentially almost every government in the world to agree on it. And if you know, if at least if you don't get the the, mo- the biggest polluters on side, then the whole thing falls apart, and we you know we risk um, you know going from trying to solve the problem to uh, individually uh, how we react to the crisis as it unfolds over the coming decades. This is Alert Radio. Mark Lee, Senior Economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, I want to thank you for joining us on our program this afternoon. All right, thanks for having me on. Thank you. That is it for Alert Radio for this week. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. We hope you will join us again next week. See you then. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Badalik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. We'd like to remind alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out canadiandimension.com. <laughs>